first of all, I just want to apologize if I sound really stuffy in this episode, but pollen is covering everything right now and my allergies are going haywire. So I might sound like I have a cold, but don't worry. It is just allergies. It is not coronavirus. I'm feeling fine. I just have a bit of a stuffy nose. That being said, there's a lot of good stuff uh, coming in this episode. If you want to get your Bible ready, you'll want to put a marker in Psalm 4, 1 Kings chapter 2, and Matthew chapter 25. And get ready for some really good stuff because this one's awesome. This is Psalm 4. The theme, rejoicing in God's protection and peace. We can place our confidence in God because he will listen when we call on him. Author is David. For the choir director, a psalm of David to be accompanied by stringed instruments. Verse 1. Answer me when I call to you, O God who declares me innocent. Free me from my troubles. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people ruin my reputation? How long will you make groundless accusations? How long will you continue in your lies? You can be sure of this. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. Many people say, who will show us better times? Let your face smile on us, Lord. You have given me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine. In peace, I will lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. Wow. My favorite verse there is verse four. It says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Uh, So I, I love to talk about not letting emotions control what comes out of our mouths or what we do. And when we let anger control what we do and what comes out of our mouths, of course, we generally regret it later. Uh, And I I love that David basically was making that point first here. And also on this scripture, I have this great footnote. uh, And at the, at the end, it says on, on uh, the verse before it, you can be sure of this. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him about David coming to God uh, with it, with his issues The Lord will answer when he calls him. My footnote reads, look at your problems in the light of God's power instead of looking at God in the shadow of your problems. And uh, amen to that, whoever wrote that. That's really great. We're starting a new section in our storyline here. Solomon's reign. So last time David died and left the kingdom in Solomon's hand. And up to this point, David has done all of the prep work for the temple. 
And now that uh, Solomon is king, uh, you know, David was hoping that Solomon would take that over. And there's a little preface to this section in my Bible. It says, Solomon established himself on the throne and then proceeded to uh, fulfill the mission David had given him. He built the temple, established a strong army, and became the richest and wisest king in the history of Israel. But his pagan wives led him into idolatry, and as a result, he led the nation into spiritual decline. No matter what position in life we attain, we are always vulnerable and must never let our guard down against sin and temptation. Yeah, Solomon did a lot of great things, but women were definitely his weakness. And then this first section is about him becoming king, and there's a preface to uh, this first piece. Uh, when Solomon was anointed king, he eliminated all opposition to the throne. He wanted to ensure that no one would challenge his rule, as Absalom and Sheba had done to his father, David. Solomon's ruthless stance against potential challengers to his throne stands in stark contrast to David's practice of trusting God to vindicate him. You know, that is true. And I can also see that Solomon was looking around at his highly dysfunctional family. Many of his older brothers had already uh, killed each other or tried to kill other people in the family. So I can also see that he, he recognized how real the threat to his throne was within his own, within his own kingdom. I'm not saying killing people is okay. I'm just saying that's the reality of the family this, this guy was born into. All right. So this first section is, uh, comes out of first Chronicles 29 verse 23 and, uh, 23 through 25 it says, so Solomon took the throne of the Lord in place of his father, David, and he succeeded in everything and all Israel obeyed him. All the officials, the warriors, and the sons of King David pledged their loyalty to King Solomon. And the Lord exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel, and he gave Solomon greater royal splendor than any king in Israel before him. And next in our timeline comes from 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 13 to 46. So, Solomon has just been made king. Picking up here 1 Kings 2, verse 13. One day, Adonijah, hopefully you remember him from our last story. He tried to uh, usurp David and take the throne before David had died and make sure that Solomon wouldn't get it. Uh, people loyal to David found out about it, including Bathsheba, and they put a stop to that. And Solomon let Adonijah live when he had grasped the, the horns of uh, the bull at the altar. So one day, this guy, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, came to see Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Have you come with peaceful intentions? She asked him. Yes. So she has not forgotten a thing. She knows who this guy is. Yes, he said. I come in peace. In fact, I have a favor to ask of you. What is it? She asked. He replied, as you know, the kingdom was rightfully mine. All Israel wanted me to be the next king. But the tables were turned, and the kingdom went to my brother instead, for that is the way the Lord wanted it. So now I have just one favor to ask of you. Please don't turn me down. What is it? She asked. Well, 
I'm surprised she even let him get his question out. He replied, Speak to King Solomon on my behalf, for I know he will do anything you request. Ask him to let me marry Abishag, the girl from Shunem. All right, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king for you. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak on Adonijah's behalf. Wow, I'm surprised she's even doing this. The king rose from his throne to meet her and he bowed down before her. So this is his mother. When he sat down on his throne again, the king ordered that a throne be brought for his mother and she sat at his right hand. I have one small request to make of you, she said. I hope you won't turn me down. What is it, my mother? He asked. You know I won't refuse you. Then let your brother Adonijah marry Abishag, the girl from Shunim, she replied. How can you possibly ask me to give Abishag to Adonijah? King Solomon demanded. You might as well ask me to give him the kingdom. You know that he is my older brother and that he has Abiathar the priest and Joab son of Zeruiah on his side. Then King Solomon made a vow before the Lord. May God strike me and even kill me if Adonijah has not sealed his fate with this request. The Lord has confirmed me and placed me on the throne of my father David. He has established my dynasty as he promised. So as surely as the Lord lives, Adonijah will die this very day. So King Solomon ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, to execute him and Adonijah was put to death. You know... Now this is starting to make a little more sense. I wonder if Bathsheba agreed to Adonijah's request, knowing exactly what Solomon would do. And maybe she wanted Adonijah to die. So she's like, sure, sure, I'll give him your question. Thinking in the back of her mind, you know, to each his own. All right, verse 26. Then the king said to Abiathar the priest, go back to your home in Anathoth. Okay, so he just killed Adonijah. Uh, and he's addressing the priest. Then the king said to Abiathar the priest, Go back to your home in Anathoth. You deserve to die, but I will not I will not kill you now, because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord for David my father, and you shared all his hardships. So Solomon dis- deposed Abiathar from his position as priest of the Lord, thereby fulfilling the prophecy the Lord had given at Shiloh concerning the descendants of Eli. Verse 28. Joab had not joined Absalom's earlier rebellion, but he had joined Adonijah's rebellion. So when Joab heard about Adonijah's death, he ran to the sacred tent of the Lord and grabbed onto the horns of the altar. So there he goes, grabbing on the horns, just like Adonijah had. When this was reported to King Solomon, he sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, to execute him. Benaiah went to the sacred tent of the Lord and said to Joab, the king orders you to come out. But Joab answered, No, I will die here. So Benaiah returned to the king and told him what Joab had said. Do as he said, the king replied. Kill him there, beside the altar, and bury him. This will remove the guilt of Joab's senseless murders from me and from my father's family. The Lord will repay him for the murders of two men who were more righteous and better than he. For my father knew nothing about the deaths of Abner, son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and of Amasa, son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. May their blood be on Joab and his descendants forever, and may the Lord grant peace forever to David, his descendants, his dynasty, and his throne. 
I think in a previous section, I read a footnote that mentioned this, that Joab had killed these two men and that this is why Solomon would later kill him. Uh, I think I read that earlier. You might remember that. I'm not sure. Uh, picking up in verse 34. So Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, returned to the sacred tent and killed Joab. And he was buried at his home in the wilderness. So he killed him right there, holding the horns of the altar. Verse 35. Then the king appointed Benaiah to command the army in place of Joab. And he installed Zadok the priest to take the place of Abiathar. The king then sent for Shimei and told him, Build a house here in Jerusalem and live there. But don't step outside the city to go anywhere else. On the day you so much as cross the Kidron Valley, you will surely die, and your blood will be on your own head. Shimei replied, Your sentence is fair. I will do whatever my lord the king commands. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem for a long time. But three years later, two of Shimei's slaves ran away to King Akish, son of Maka of Gath. When Shimei learned where they were, he saddled his donkey and went to Gath to search for them. When he found them, he brought them back to Jerusalem. Solomon heard that Shimei had left Jerusalem and had gone to Gath and returned. So the king sent for Shimei and demanded, Didn't I make you swear by the Lord and warn you not to go anywhere else or you would surely die? And you replied, The sentence is fair, I will do as you say. Then why haven't you kept your oath to the Lord and obeyed my command? The king also said to Shimei, You certainly remember all the wicked things you did to my father David. May the Lord now bring that evil on your own head. May I, King Solomon, receive the Lord's blessings, and may one of David's descendants always sit on this throne in the presence of the Lord. Then, at the king's command, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, took Shimei outside and killed him. So the kingdom was now firmly in Solomon's grip. So in our little story here, a lot has happened. And there's a lot of really good stuff in my footnotes that I'm going to share. Uh, about Solomon's behavior here. I mean, he basically just came in and started cleaning house, right? Uh, I have a footnote that says Solomon ordered the execution of Adonijah, Joab, and Shimei, forced Abiathar out as priest, and then appointed new men to take their places. He took these actions swiftly, securing his grip on the kingdom by executing justice and tying up loose ends that could affect the future stability of his kingdom. Solomon was promoting peace, not bloodshed. He was a man of peace in two ways. He did not go to war and he put an end to internal rebellion. So this does look really harsh right up front what Solomon did. But moving forward, uh, Solomon's reign is characterized as a time of peace. And perhaps these, uh, these actions right up front, taking care of the guys that had rebelled against him while his father was still alive was part of making sure that wasn't going to happen again. So verse 27 mentions a fulfilled prophecy. 
It says, So Solomon deposed Abiathar from his position as priest of the Lord, thereby fulfilling the prophecy the Lord had given at Shiloh concerning the descendants of Eli. And this prophecy comes out of 1 Samuel 2, verse 27, which is that Eli's descendants would not continue to serve as priests. So Abiathar was one of the priests of Eli. And I flipped back to 1 Samuel to read that story, and I thought it was worth reading here. It's a, it's a short uh, passage, and it's God's words. So Eli was a priest, and his two sons were also priests. And Eli wasn't the best priest, but his sons were terrible. And they took advantage of the people and ate sacrifices they weren't supposed to eat and did a lot of pretty horrible things. Well, God is the judge, and their time came. Uh, one day, a man of God came to Eli. Oh, this is 1 Samuel 2, verse 27. Uh, through 36. One day, a man of God came to Eli and gave him this message from the Lord. I reveal myself to your I revealed myself to your ancestors when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. I chose your ancestor Aaron, Aaron being Moses's brother, from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear the priestly vest as he served me. And he signed the sacrificial offerings to you, priests. So why do you scorn my sacred sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I promised that your branch of the tribe of Levi would always be my priests. But I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. The time is coming when I will put an end to your family, so it will no longer serve as my priests. All the members of your family will die before their time. None will reach old age. You will watch with envy as I pour out prosperity on the people of Israel, but no members of your family will ever live out their days. Those who survive will live in sadness and grief, and their children will die a violent death. And to prove that what I have said will come true, I will cause your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and these are the two that did the most evil, including sexual sins and religious-based uh, crimes as well. They will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a faithful priest who will serve me and do what I desire. I will establish his family and they will be priests to my anointed kings forever. Then all of your surviving family will bow before him, begging for money and food. Please, they will say, give us jobs among the priests so we will have enough to eat. And of course, the priest that follows Eli is Samuel, who becomes very close to David. Another character worth mentioning here, because this story, because Solomon is coming in and cleaning house, but then he's got to fill those positions. So we get a bunch of key characters uh, introduced into our plot line here. And one of those new key characters is who he made uh, the leader of his army in place of Joab, who was Benaiah. Benaiah 
was one of David's mighty men. And I read part of that section a while back. Coming from 2 Samuel 23, you might remember this guy, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. So this is the guy Solomon just put in charge in place of Joab. It says he did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. So this is the lion guy who chased a lion. Uh, once armed only with a club, he killed a great Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Deeds like these made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was more honored than the other members of the 30, though he was not one of the three, and David made him captain of his bodyguard. So it's not like this guy came out of nowhere. He's got leadership skills. He's obviously a mighty warrior. He's been uh, the captain of David's personal bodyguard, which means Solomon knows this guy really, really well. And he just made him uh, leader of the royal army. And I think that catches us up to speed. Moving on to the New Testament. So in the storyline of Jesus, we are in Matthew chapter 25, and Jesus is going to tell us a couple parables and then about the final judgment. And this is the very last chapter before uh, Judas' betrayal of Jesus. So it's at the very end of the gospel of Matthew, and the next big section is going to be Jesus' death. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, Jesus tells the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. In Matthew 25, now verse 14, this is the parable of loaned money. He says, Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant 
with two bags of silver, also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit the money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, Take the money from the servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the next Jesus tells about the final judgment. And this picks up in Matthew 25 verse 31. But when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence. And he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for the, for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, 
you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So yet again, there is so much packed into this one little chapter. What I love is that these stories told separately just mean a little bit. But when you read them back to back like this, you can see that they're all related. Uh, One of my footnotes I thought I would share with you. It says the story of the 10 bridesmaids teaches that we are responsible for our own individual spiritual condition. The story of the three servants shows the necessity of using well what God has entrusted to us. And the parable of the sheep and goats stresses the importance of serving others in need. No parable by itself completely describes our preparation. Instead, each paints one part of the whole picture. So one is about taking care of our spiritual condition. The other is about using what God gives us. And the last is about using it to help others. And when I think about how these relate, like if we're not taking care of our spiritual condition, we might not be aware of what God has given us that we have used for him. And our eyes might not be open to the opportunities he's giving us to use it and how to serve other people. And one thing that really stuck me about serving others is this time we're living in right now with this pandemic. I mean, tens of thousands of people have filed for unemployment and no help is going to come because the system is so overloaded right now. And uh, a friend of mine pointed out that We've got this this whole population of people who don't have legal immigration status. They can't even try to file for unemployment. They've got nothing. And we've got children losing their grandparents to the virus. And their grandparents are raising the children because that's what happens in America these days. We've got an entire... A cultural population of grandparents raising their grandchildren, right? And in the midst of all of this, just, you know, devastation across the world, you also see these acts of kindness and people helping each other. One footnote here says, this parable describes acts of mercy we can do every day. These acts do not depend on wealth, ability, or intelligence. They are simple acts freely given and freely received. We have no excuse to neglect those who have deep needs, and we cannot hand over this responsibility to the church or government. Jesus demands our personal involvement in caring for others' needs. And that reminds me, there's a, a house near my church that put out a, a community pantry table. 
where people could just come and get pantry items or they could leave them on the table for each other. You know, people are sewing masks for the hospital workers. And I, I just think a lot about what can be done in this time to help. What can I do in this time to help? My husband and I had a conversation about this whole stipend thing that's supposed to come around and how he and I are so blessed to even still have our jobs right now. We don't think that we would qualify for this stipend. We hope we don't because it honestly needs to go to other people. Uh, But if we ended up getting anything we already talked about, we're not keeping it. You know, there's too many people out there in need. We'll be fine. Um, And I'm trying to think of other ways to to help people right now. And so I'm trying to keep my eyes open to look for opportunities and to be aware of what God has given me that I can use. And through this Bible study, I am trying, though not quite regularly, I will admit, I am trying to take care of my spiritual condition so that I can be more aware of these things. This reminds me one time I was running to Subway to get my husband and I a couple sandwiches and, uh, On my way in, I saw a homeless guy on the sidewalk and on my way out with my sandwiches, he stopped me and asked for some money. And of course, I, I, I don't give money to, to the homeless. I usually carry some granola bars in my car and we'll, we'll give them a granola bar, pop tart or whatever I've, I've got. Um, at the end at the time, you know, I wasn't in my car and I didn't have any cash on me and I said, you know, I don't have any money. And I started to walk away and then I came back. I'm like, I can't pray with you though. And he kind of got this funny look on his face and he looked at me. He's like, he kind of nods his head a little bit. He's like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And so I walked up to him. I grabbed his hand and I said, what's your name? He said, Michael. I said, oh, that's a biblical name. He goes, yeah, no. And so we had a little prayer and then I left and it dawned on me later. I'm sitting there holding two like freshly made Subway sandwiches and it had really been, you know, in tune with the spirit, I would have just handed him the sandwiches, walked in and bought me a couple more. Like it wouldn't have been that big a deal. Cause I'm like, no, I don't have any money. And then I walk off with my two sandwiches. <laughs> but so, you know, half points, I don't know there, but that just, that made me think of Michael, this story. And I, I think about him every once in a while. I hope he's doing all right. Uh, another couple verses that stood out to me here is when in the story about the final judgment with the sheep and the goats, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, and what he says to them about where they're going. To the sheep, he says that they are going to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. So when God laid the foundation, and of course, Hebrews talks about how Jesus was there laying the foundation of the world. They were also creating the the kingdom of the the people that had yet to even be created i mean all of this is is planned out in advance in ways we cannot fathom and the other thing that stood out to me and i was really bummed that my my bible didn't put a special footnote on this this particular verse verse 41 is where he tells the people on his left where they're going to be going. And it says into the eternal fire prepared for prepared for who prepared for the devil and his demons, or it can say his angels, the devil and his angels. So it's not like hell was prepared for people. It wasn't hell was prepared for the devil. 
And in the scriptures that talk about Satan being cast out of heaven, he wasn't cast to hell. He was cast to the earth, right? Like he was cast down to earth and hell is where he's going to end up. Anyway, and this is just one of those random verses that kind of talks about that, which I think is really neat. Now, I did have a footnote on this, this verse, not about that specifically, but about the term, the different words used for hell and what they mean in which context. Uh, so there's three different words for hell. The first one is Sheol or Sheol. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. S-H-E-O-L. It says, or the grave was used in the Hebrew Old Testament to mean the place of the dead, generally thought to be under the earth. And this particular word is used in Job 24, 19, Psalm 16, 10, and Isaiah 38, 10. Another word is Hades which I'm sure everyone's familiar with. Hades is the Greek word for the underworld, the realm of the dead. It is the word used in the New Testament for Sheol. So in the Old Testament, they said Sheol. In the New Testament, they said Hades, both rough equivalents. Uh, and this one is used in Matthew 16, 18, Revelation 1, 18, and Revelation 20, verse 13 to 14. And then the last word is Gehenna. This is or hell. It was named after the Valley of Ben Hinnom near Jerusalem, where children were sacrificed by fire to the pagan gods. This is used in Second Kings twenty three ten and Second Chronicles twenty eight three. This is the place of eternal fire, also used in the New Testament in Matthew five twenty two and ten twenty eight, Mark nine forty three, Luke twelve five. James 3, 6, and Revelation 19, 20. It is prepared for the devil, his angels, and all those who do not believe in God, used in this verse here, Matthew 25, 46, and Revelation 29 through 10. This is the final and eternal state of the wicked after the resurrection, the last judgment. It says, when Jesus warns against unbelief, he's trying to save us from agonizing eternal punishment anyway so i think the key points of this are invest in your spiritual condition use what god has given you and use it to help others that's jesus main points in all of these parables here